Welcome to the Hot Topics in EMS podcast. I'm Battalion Chief Tim Burns from Montgomery County Fire and Rescue. Um, and I'm joined today by Eric Getz. Eric uh, is from Hartford County. Eric, what's your official title up there? So I am a part-time paid paramedic at Joppa Magnolia Volunteer Fire, and I'm currently a career paramedic for Cecil County Emergency Services. Great. Thank you for being with us today. I'm also joined by Captain Shipley, the QA officer, and, uh, and Captain Nick Wagner, uh, who's in the office with me right now. Greetings, everybody. Uh, you may notice that uh, Chief Kaufman is not here. Chief Kaufman is somewhere on a beach uh, in Florida, but he says he's at a conference. So um, <laughs> I'll leave that up to you guys to decide what the truth is. So today we wanted to go over the new protocol that's coming out July 1st. And it involves our treatment of patients with congestive heart failure and acute pulmonary edema. We're going to incorporate, uh, there's an optional supplemental protocol for the administration of intravenous nitroglycerin. Montgomery County, we've already decided that we're going to uh, adopt this optional supplemental protocol. You should see a training package forthcoming. So we won't be starting it right on July 1st. It's just going to be a matter of getting everybody up to speed and trained because as we, as we'll talk about here shortly, uh, it's a, it's a high consequence medication. It's, it's not like giving somebody an aspirin. So we want to make sure everybody's up to speed with it and then we'll have to roll it out to the field. So uh, let me go first to Eric. Eric, you, you brought this protocol packet forth to the protocol review committee. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got the idea where the idea came from and what the medical evidence is behind using this in the field? Sure. So starting off, this actually took a lot longer than people would imagine. I had had this idea about five and a half years ago before I even became a paramedic when I was in paramedic school, um, doing my ER rotations at York Trauma Center up in Pennsylvania and seeing some of these um, flash pulmonary edema or otherwise called scape patients coming to the ER and seeing these enormous, enormous doses of nitroglycerin combined with, with uh, BiPAP given in the ER. I was seeing these dosage ranges of 100 to 200 micrograms a minute on these critical CHF exacerbation patients. So something kind of clicked in my mind of, well, in the field, we're always taught don't ever remove the CPAP, but these two combinations of therapy, they work best in synergy. They don't work best with just one. And once you get CPAP on in the field, you're reliant solely on paste form of nitroglycerin, which is relatively ineffective. The absorption rate is can be significantly varying depending on how clammy the patient is and a whole bunch of other factors. So really you're losing half of your treatment plan in the field once you get CPAP on because you don't wanna compromise the effectiveness of the CPAP by breaking seal to give more tablets. So my idea was how can I bring this to the field in a form that is safe and that will still be significantly beneficial for a wide range of patients in the field in Maryland. And so I approached Dr. Sward, who is my medical director in Harford County with my idea. I had already 
collated a whole bunch of research regarding it. I've made a few phone calls to departments across the nation who are already doing this in other states. And I structured a protocol based on that. And he signed off on it and agreed to go to bat with me to the protocol review committee when I finally was able to get everything together. And that was only about two years ago that I finally got everything squared away. You use the acronym SCAPE. What does that stand for? So that's more of a new terminology that I've been seeing floating around. It's called sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. Rather than flash pulmonary edema, it's more to emphasize the significant fashion of the sympathetic surge in the body. Too many people get hung up on the term flash pulmonary edema as occurring within seconds to a minute or two, when in reality, it's over the course of half an hour to an hour or several hours as compared to chronic CHF exacerbation, which progresses over the course of days or weeks. So to emphasize that it's not an instantaneous process and that it's more of a cycle than anything, and these patients are very critical. Gotcha. And, and what does that patient look like? So that patient, when you start encountering one that looks like that, um, I actually had the misfortune of encountering one recently, a few months ago, before we were able to even get the protocol into the protocols that we wrote. The patient is going to present with severe rails. They're going to be in extreme respiratory distress. They're going to be profoundly hypertensive and they're going to be profoundly anxious. And the anxiety uh, is going to be part of the death spiral. So they're, they're going to feel dyspneic and awful which is going to trigger a sympathetic surge in vasoconstriction. And then their afterload's going to crank up. It's going to worsen their heart failure. More fluid's going to back up into their lungs. Now they have impaired lung function, so they feel worse and worse, and the whole spiral continues to go downhill. So you're going to see this just profoundly sick respiratory distress patient who can go in the span of about half an hour presenting relatively normal but mildly anxious to critical right in front of you, which is what happened with ours. She had mild dyspnea, mild, mild, mild faint rails in the bases, mildly hypertensive. 20 minutes later during transport, her blood pressure is now 200s over 120s. She's got severe rails in all lung fields. She's in severe respiratory distress. So these patients can suddenly take a turn for the worse on you and you really need to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, anybody who's been around for more than a week and a half has seen the acute pulmonary edema, congestive heart failure patients, right? They're very common for us and we, and we do a really good job at treating them. You know, reading through the protocol, it seems like the differentiation here that we're looking for is these really high blood pressures. Would you say that's fair or, or is there something else that goes along with it? So I would say that's definitely fair. The other thing is some heart failure patients, they do respond very well to CPAP or BiPAP in the field. This is primarily for the ones who you would see like in the ER, as I described, who end up on these incredibly high dosages of nitro drips. This is somebody whose blood pressure is going to be maintaining despite those um, intrathoracic pressure shifts you get from CPAP, where you normally get some level of blood pressure reduction 
you're going to see somebody who's still maintaining profoundly hypertensive. They're still in profound distress. They're not responding well to the treatment or not well enough and not fast enough to the point where if you're in my jurisdiction, you may even be having to consider RSIing the patient because you have a long transport time and the patient's not turning around. Right. Yeah, we've come a long way in our treatment of congestive heart failure. In my tenure in EMS, it's always been something that we've had a lot of tools in the toolbox for, right? When I first started, I think we had, uh, you know, the big go-to was nitro and Lasix. And, yeah. and when they were real bad, you know, we did a lot of nasal intubations on, on congestive heart failure patients. Uh, and that sort of progressed. And for a little while there, we had an ACE inhibitor. I forget which one it was. I believe it was Captopril. Yeah, Captopril. We had that for a while. That seemed to work. But then we found problems with that. And, and we went back to the good old just heavy nitrates and CPAP. And, you know, for, for a lot of those patients, it'll, it'll get us through till we get to the ER. And then they'll get more nitroglycerin that we can't give them because we've obstructed their their oropharynx with, with CPAP, right? So this allows us to continue to treat a patient who otherwise we would have just been stuck with CPAP that may be relieving their symptoms right now or they're maintaining on, um, but when you, when you look at their blood pressures, their blood pressures are still high, uh, their pulse ox and work of breathing may be improved, but they're not completely better. And, and it really just gives us the, the ability to move them forward. And then there's also that subset of patients where the, the CPAP isn't quite doing it, you know, and they're more rare and they're the ones that end up getting intubated, although they're very, very few and far between now. Despite the CPAP and the, the sublingual nitros that we got on before we, we put them on CPAP, uh, they're just not not improving enough on those two therapies and we need to do a little something more. So I know Captain Wagner pulled some data out of our emeds. Nick, how many times a year are we estimating that we'll use this? The estimation was between about 130 and 150 patients qualified for this treatment. So definitely a significant number of patients that we can impact by this protocol. So I get to the scene and my patients, you know, your typical 60 year old guy, leaning forward on the couch. He's ashen, diaphoretic. I can hear his rails from across the room. He's got a pulse ox in the 80s. You know, so we're already thinking, all right, this guy's in CHF shortly after getting a blood pressure. I'm giving him two sublingual nitros and putting the CPAP on him. After I do that, Eric, what numeric values and things do I need to have in order to qualify this person to get the IV nitroglycerin? So the main target is going to be somebody who's still in profound distress on CPAP with a blood pressure of at least systolic of 150 or a mean arterial pressure greater than 90. I think most people kind of agree we're not going to be trying to do the calculation of MAP in our heads, which thankfully the life packs do that for us. The nice two or three digit number in between our systolic and diastolic on the monitor, that'll pop us up an estimated map. So it's either one of those that you can use to guide your treatment plan. If the patient remains higher than or at that, despite application of CPAP, then you can proceed with the IV nitro protocol. Gotcha. So, you know, in this critically unstable patient, you know, we've been focusing a lot on on-scene resuscitation of, of the critically unstable patient prior to moving. So I'm thinking in an ideal world, right, you guys are clinicians listening to this podcast. You guys are clinicians, uh, and we want you to be thinking, so not every every situation is the same. 
but we've got it. We've identified a critically unstable patient. You, you've got the uh, two sublingual nitros on board. You've done your assessment. You've got them on CPAP um, and say their, their dyspnea is improving, their pulse ox is improving, but that blood pressure is still staying up there at, at 200 systolic or 180 systolic. I am thinking that probably the best course of action is to, before you move the patient, try and start a line and, and that IV nitro can be done before you move them out to the unit. It needs to happen earlier in the sequence than later, right? It's not something that we can, all right, we got them on CPAP, throw them in the unit, and then we'll start an IV and head to the hospital. And, and if we get time, we'll give them the nitroglycerin. I think that defeats the purpose. What do you think about that, Eric? So I would entirely agree with you on that. Um, the CPAP on its own is a temporizing measure. You really do need the combination of both therapies to truly start turning this patient around. There are patients who may temporarily improve on the CPAP, but then they can progressively continue to get worse because part of it is the anxiety issue and you have claustrophobia from the mask and things like that. And then the person's blood pressure can continue to rise. They have continued worsening rails. So you really do need to initiate both therapies as soon as possible. And I think that's also kind of a paradigm shift we've seen in Maryland in general, in our protocols and our mindset and culture in EMS over the last decade or so is a shift from load and go to stay and play, I guess, as it were a little bit. Me personally, when I deal with respiratory patients, I generally like to treat them at point of patient contact initially before moving them out to the unit. So especially my COPDers, it's not uncommon that if I have a, a severe COPDer that I'm starting a line in the house, I'm starting CPAP in the house, I'm doing continuous NIPs, I'm administering DEX and I'm hanging mag all before I even move the patient out to the unit. So that pretty much my entire treatment regimen's done because realistically, when you think about it, how long does it typically take to get a patient if they're in the second floor of a house out to your ambulance? It can take 10, 15 minutes to get everything moved out to the unit, carry the patient out. And in that time, the patient still hasn't received adequate treatment. They're still getting worse. When we could have improved them at point of contact, and now we can take our time safely moving the patient out rather than it being a rush with them getting worse the whole time we like to emphasize that we, we spend a lot of money and a lot of time training people to do things, equipping them to do things, and then sending them out to the world to be good paramedics and do paramedic things. And that's what we're looking for uh, on, on any patient, but most specifically these critically unstable patients. Captain Shipley, what's the etiology of most of these critically unstable patients? Would you say it's respiratory? Yeah, without a question, the majority of them are respiratory in nature, whether that is uh, some set of uh, hypoxia, hypercarbia, tachypnea, um, you name it. And we can go into details and we've gone into details regarding, you know, the underlying cause of those, but recognizing that you have a critically unstable patient who is in respiratory distress, you need to correct that before you move that patient bring the medicine to that patient, stabilize them, resuscitate them. Uh, and then once you complete that initial bundle of care, then you can start uh, formulating a plan to 
get them out of the environment that they're in uh, so that way you can facilitate transport. But respiratory is the majority of the ones that we've been seeing. Yeah, and when we, we, we brought forth the, the critically unstable patient protocol, you know, one of the things that we identified and that we've acknowledged is that our folks were really good at recognizing the critically unstable patient, right? They, they can walk into a room and say, wow, that person's sick. Um, it was the, there was a disconnect between the urgency of how, how quickly they needed to deliver treatments, right? And, and this unacknowledged gap that happens between, all right, I walk in and I see a critically unstable patient and then let's get them out to the unit. And people tend to lose track of time that, all right, well, 10 minutes has gone by. This person hasn't gotten adequate therapies and now they're in cardiac arrest. And that's what we're trying to prevent. But getting back to the, the IV nitroglycerin, Eric, so when, when we do identify the patient who is a candidate to receive it, how does the dosing work? What should our folks expect there? So in terms of the dosing, my goal is to make it as simplistic as possible because, of course, understanding there's a wide variance and confidence in terms of mixing up a medication in the field and how often do you do something like this. Our goal was to make it straightforward, simple, no weight-based dosing. And what we came up with was we're going to go ahead and have a straightforward across the board 400 micrograms. So you're going to simply dilute a 100 ml bag down, kind of like an epidrip or kind of like a cardizem bolus that you may be giving. You're going to draw up 10 milligrams out of a high dose nitroglycerin vial, or if you're one of the departments that's looking at carrying a huge tridale vial, you can also use that. The goal is just to get it down to 100 micrograms per ml concentration for safety's sake if there's a dosing error. And you'll inject 10 milligrams into the 100 ml bag. You'll agitate the mixture so that you get that concentration right. And then you now have 100 micrograms per ml. And then every five minutes, you'll administer four mls or 400 micrograms every five minutes or so, slow IV. You don't want to slam it. You don't want to treat it like it's adenosine. Pretty much any medication except for adenosine, it's a relatively slow push over the course of one to two minutes. This is not something where you are like, I'm in a rush, I need to get this person moving, I'm just gonna slam it like it's a flush and get them moving. You don't wanna do that. It needs to be a slow push over one to two minutes and then give that every five minutes or so for a targeted about 20% reduction in their systolic blood pressure. Great, and then for, for those uh, MSOPs that are carrying IV pumps, Yes. Uh, would, you, would you say it's better to give one dose push and then start a drip or just start it out on a drip and, and, and then titrate it up? What so yeah. me personally, given that's not covered in the protocol, I personally, I've always been a fan of push dose prior to initiating an infusion because there is time it takes to set up an infusion, especially with a pump. I would personally recommend giving them a 400 microgram push dose real quick 
while you're priming and setting up that pump because that does take a few minutes, but it takes a lot less time to just draw up four mLs out of the 100 mL bag and then let somebody else set up the infusion pump for you. I think it's better to just get that initial treatment going and then initiate the infusion after that. Right, so the 400 mics would get you through the first five minutes and then you can put them on the pump at, I guess. It's, uh, 40 micrograms a minute and then you titrate up by five mics a minute every five minutes or so till either they significantly improve, their blood pressure comes down or you max out at 80 micrograms a minute. And Captain Wagner, do you want to tell us why this is probably important for our folks? Give us a little update on that. Yeah, I, th I think it's important to, to note that the data and the evidence suggests uh, some very impactful patient outcomes. When this was studied, it definitely shortened the length of stay in the hospitals when uh, treatment combination was applied to the patient. So something that we don't see necessarily, you know, in, in our duties and jobs in the pre-hospital setting, but when the patient's tracked over the course of their, their treatment, it uh, reduces their, their time in the hospital and improves them and gets them back to you know, back to their daily activities of living. We've uh, obtained the funding to get uh, IV pumps. So we'll be implementing IV pumps. We'll be training personnel and deploying them after, after the training to uh, all the ALS packages out there. So uh, definitely more to come on that, but we look forward to the opportunity to, uh, to be able to provide more medications more accurately to, to our patients via the IV pump. Yep, so we're, we're shooting sometime in the next six months to have it all wrapped up. We, we've just secured the funding, so there's a lot of logistics of getting the, the units here and that, but this was one of the reasons that led us down this road is, is being able to, to put this specific medication on the pump and deliver it a little bit more reliably and accurately than a push dose, right? Instead of, instead of one spike in, in medication concentration over over five minutes that sort of tapers off over five minutes and then another bump, right? So we'll get a bump at the beginning and then start a nice constant drip that, uh, that hope that, that should prove to be a, a little bit more accurate way of administering the medication. Eric, what should our folks be looking for in terms of side effects, adverse reactions, things like that? In terms of side effects, adverse reactions, it's generally going to be the similar ones you'd expect to see from tablet form, just much more rapid, given that it's intravenous and onset is almost immediate compared to tablet form, which takes time to absorb. So you're going to potentially encounter things like headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness. And of course, you want to keep an eye out for decreased level of consciousness or hypotension with it. Given that it is a, a major vasodilatory medication, you really want to keep an eye out for their blood pressure and make sure it doesn't drop too much. And then you may start having other problems with that. The benefit to giving nitro intravenously is even with hanging it on an infusion pump, because the half-life of the medication is so short that you practically almost never should need to intervene upon hypotension, it should self-resolve within a few minutes of discontinuing the infusion or holding off on your next push dose. The half-life of the medication is around five to seven minutes or so. So you should start seeing a improvement in blood pressure if they significantly drop their pressure pretty quickly without needing to consider fluid bolus or an epi drip or something like that. Gotcha. So I, I may have gotten ahead of myself. 
So they do give either the bolus and the drip or, or just the bolus of the medication and they're waiting to give another another bolus. What are they looking for and what should what should they see? What's the desired or intended effect? How can they tell that what they've done was working? So one of the main things, of course, is going to be the patient's presentation. Does the patient appear to be improving their respiratory effort? reassessing their lung sound, something that I harp on constantly when I have paramedic students. Always, always, always reassess your patient, including lung sounds every few minutes after a significant intervention, especially something like this. You want to know, is it staying the same? Is it getting better? Are the rails getting worse? Or am I hearing some other type of adventitious lung sounds as well now that may be a concern? Um, and then, of course, keeping an eye on their blood pressure. Is their blood pressure coming down? Do they appear less anxious? Is their heart rate improving? Because a lot of these patients, they're going to be anxious. They're going to be agitated. So most likely, generally, unless they're on something like a beta blocker, their heart rate's going to be pretty elevated too. So combining that clinical impression of the patient's presentation with their vital signs and making that judgment call of, are they staying the same? Are they getting better or are they getting worse still? Is there an end point to the therapies? So say they either they're giving boluses every five minutes or they're, they put them on the infusion pump. Did, is there a point when they stop? There is a hard cap for the infusion rate on the IV pump of 80 mics a minute. If there's no significant improvement at that point on 80 micrograms a minute, I would start me personally, at least, I would be heavily considering RSIing the patient because they are just not improving at all despite the maximal therapy I'm able to provide them reasonably non-invasively. And this is somebody who in the ER, they'd be considering innovating most likely as well. Um, with IV bolus form, the protocol dictates that of course, you can administer two doses prior to a consult, but consult-wide with infusion pump, with bolus form, there's still a mandatory physician consult given that this is a pilot protocol. We're going to be collecting a lot of data. This is a very new concept to bring to the state of Maryland, so they want to have physician involvement over the radio. And having that discussion with the physician after a certain point of, we've done our maximal therapy, do you have any further rec recommendations for us because the patient isn't improving or do we need to consider progressing to more aggressive airway management at this point? Now, it does talk about a 20% reduction in systolic blood pressure. So you're giving, um, and I, I would imagine that the same is for, uh, for the IV infusion, right? So you type it up until you get the 20% reduction in, in systolic blood pressure? Yes, correct. And then if you, especially with the um, pump form, because you can be a lot more specific with your dosing and keep an eye really on that blood pressure a little more closely than you can the bolus form. Um, if you hit that 20% reduction, then you're either going to maintain the infusion pump at that point, or if they have significantly dropped past 20%, then you're going to want to consider titrating it back by about five micrograms a minute every five minutes until you hit that targeted systolic blood pressure. Because the IV pump is going to be a continuous infusion of the medication rather than in the bolus form where they're getting it every five minutes. So 
you want to try and hit that sweet spot of maintaining them at the target blood pressure and not sending them too far down. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's all very interesting. Can anybody think of anything that we missed? I think the only thing that's important to, to remind the folks is uh, it's imperative to, to recheck the blood pressure every five minutes. So something that we need to be cognizant of, especially with uh, IV pumps, you know, we're going to be hyper-focused on, on them and making sure that they're operating correctly until, you know, we get our confidence up in them. So just a reminder to check the blood pressure every five minutes. Wes, you got anything? Yeah. So if you wanted to run through a scenario really quick, walk in, find a patient uh, in extremis, tripoding, rails, pale ashen gray, things of that nature that's going to point you in this direction. Or you may have even ran this patient prior, right? So you may remember their, um, their medical history. First intervention uh, that you're going to want to go through and do, obviously make patient contact, uh, start assessing them, and then start working through good crew resource management to get this patient hooked up to oxygen. Um, if they have uh, availability of vascular access, start working on that. Uh, definitely, if it's not an ALS2 call, get that second ALS clinician coming. Um, while you're working on access, um, is there any um, indication or something that would prevent us from giving sublingual nitro to that patient while we're getting the IV and things set up? Eric? So there technically would not be anything preventing you from giving the tablet form. And I would honestly heavily encourage that because this is, this is very much so a stepwise treatment plan. If you don't have an IV, you give the tablet form. If you don't have tablet form, you give the paste form. You're moving in the direction of getting nitro on board however you can as soon as possible. The only thing to keep in mind is, of course, in the pilot protocol, Prior to starting the intravenous form, they do want you to get a 12 lead where possible prior to giving the intravenous nitroglycerin. The concern being the ever-present thought of if this is a true respiratory or if this exacerbation is the result of a STEMI. And we want to evaluate that and determine is this person having an inferior MI and if they are, let's make sure they don't have right-sided involvement because of the theory that if we give intravenous or tablet nitroglycerin to somebody with STEMI with right-sided involvement, we destroy their preload and their blood pressure is going to take a nosedive. Yep. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up where we left off there, right? So you walk in, you recognize this patient, um, you start doing your assessment, get them hooked up to the monitor, getting a set of vitals, getting the three leads put on. Uh, you grab uh, your vial, you give them two tablets sublingually, you get the CPAP on them. Um, and then once you have all that initial interventions done, uh, you can go through, get your 12 lead, verify that there's no uh, right side of involvement, get that vascular access started, um, start facilitating that push dose um, temporarily. And then once we get the pumps, uh, we can you know start moving towards um, a drip of nitro after that initial push, push dose, stabilize the patient to the best of your ability, um, make sure you go through that bundle of care, start facilitating that movement of the patient out to the unit. Once you're in the unit, uh, continue to reevaluate the need for uh, nitro, whether it's by push dose or by drip through the pump, uh, facilitate your transport, 
vitals every five minutes, repeat EKGs as needed, and then you're reaching out and you're making medical consultation with the hospital and then giving them information as it relates to the interventions that you've done, the interventions that you plan on doing, and then obviously as the, the new pilot protocol indicates, uh, if you've reached the end of your treatment algorithm, if there's anything in addition that uh, could potentially be warranted. Yep, that pretty much hits the nail on the head for what I think how this protocol should run and how we should be handling these patients. And uh, I know that we've progressed in Maryland, especially with this protocol update, away from mandating a physician on the line for any priority one patient anymore, which was kind of a thing of just, does the physician really need to be on the line for the vast majority of these priority one patients, or is this just a heads up to the ER? In this case, they did want, um, in the protocol review committee and moving down, a lot of the physicians did still wanna have that physician involvement in this specific priority one patient, which is why it's still mandatory if you're using this protocol to have a physician on the line during your transport when you're doing the consultation, mainly because this patient is going to be profoundly critical if you're progressing to intravenous nitroglycerin. This is a significant intervention that's not done really anywhere in the U.S. There's only a couple states in the whole country that allow it, and of those states, there's very few jurisdictions that actually do it. So we're one of a very select few states that allow this in the field. So there's not a ton of data of pre-hospital usage and safety yet, which is why they want the physician to be involved in making recommendations and also just to hear the firsthand report from the paramedic in the field so that the physician can already start having that game plan of what he needs to do when we arrive at the hospital. Sounds good. Well, thanks everybody for being online today uh, so that we can chat about this. Uh, thanks to everybody out in the field for listening in. We're very excited that this is going to really improve the care that we provide to these escape CHF patients and hopefully improve our, our overall value to the residents and visitors of Montgomery County. With that, we'll see you next time. Thanks.